episode three. And um, once again, I have with me Ken Piedra, the head of product at Softiware. And uh, so this discussion is meant to be around uh, the specifics of managing workflows with a remote development team. So we've, um, you know, we'll do other discussions around other aspects of a remote kind of business. Um, but I wanna talk about specifically managing work. So not about managing the employees so much or about, um, you know, hiring, firing, those kinds of things. Just the specific area of getting work done, managing from idea through to live product. So um, that particular area. And so we have, you know, we have a lot of experience doing that kind of thing. And um, so this video would be intended for anybody who, um, it could be for someone who manages a remote team already. It could also be for someone who is considering uh, starting to hire people on Upwork or somewhere else and start managing remote people and like wondering what some of the challenges are specifically as regarding getting stuff done. So um, with that introduction, I'll just jump into the questions unless you have uh, anything you wanted to lead off with, Ken. No, let's uh, go ahead okay. and get started. Sounds good. Um, so the first question, when working with remote developers, they sometimes go dark and progress obviously grinds to a halt when a developer goes dark. Um, there can be a lot of reasons this can happen. How do you encourage communication from remote workers? So what I mean by that is um, when someone goes dark, it might mean that they're uh, annoyed or frustrated or um, you know, it could be my fault that they go dark. It could also be something that goes on with, with them. It could be, um, it could also be, um, you know, maybe it's their fault, I don't know. But what, do you, what are your tips as regards keeping um, the communication lines open or encouraging communication from remote workers? Yeah, absolutely. So obviously the first thing to do is to make sure that you're prepared ahead of time uh, and, and communicating with the developer ahead of time about the project. So typically speaking, you'll write a story or a list of requirements uh, or several stories, obviously, to get the project uh, going and completed. Hopefully you and the developer have had time to go over the ideas, make sure that you guys both understand what's going on. And then maybe he's able to estimate how long it's gonna take him to develop that kind of, uh, develop the product. Mm -hmm. uh, also, we wanna also find out from the developer how many hours he's able to dedicate to your team or to your project per day. Then you guys kind of both have a really good idea or understanding that, you know, if project say it's going to take 20, 20 hours and he only works four days a week, then maybe it'll be finished, you know, by the weekend or within five business days, whatever the math turns out to be. Um, so that's important. And I think that sets the expectation. And I think people in, in general like to meet those types of deadlines and have there's some kind of understanding between the product, the client and the developer as far as, um, how much time is being invested and then what the estimated time of completion is. And then it's great to do a periodic check-in, you know, a couple days in the project or, or whatever, as you're kind of looking through, you can see if code's been committed to GitHub or if you've heard communication from the developer to find out if he has any roadblocks, if there's been any issues or if there's something that came up that might make things take longer or not. Um, right. Obviously, if you do that, then you kind of, anytime you have a conversation with somebody, hopefully if they plan on being out or something comes up, Mm -hmm. The more lines of communication that are open, the more open they are to kind of telling you 
you know, that it's something's going to take shorter or longer to kind of produce or be done with. So, yeah. um, like I said, the key is to set expectations and try to keep those communication lines open. Right. Okay. Those are really good tips. And, and I've, I've seen you do a really good job of um, maintaining a discussion with the developer. So developers don't seem to go dark um, so much with you. I, I think that you do a really good job of um, keeping the developer, um, keeping the developer kind of on the ready. And uh, so I, I think um, I think those are really good tips. So what I heard was um, you're saying that upfront upfront communication, like if you kick off the project with a certain expectation and then you start to fail on that expectation, then obviously the developer's gonna get frustrated, right? So, um, so, so that's, I heard that's why that's important. And then um, from the standpoint of ongoing communication, like you're, you're not just expecting the developer to continue to come back to you, but you're initiating a lot of contact so that, um, so that the developer has different channels where they can um, come back to you with, with feedback or responses or whatever. So any, anything else about, um, so what I've seen is, um, you know, I think you do a great job of building the rapport with the developer and keeping that rapport. Like the develop, the developers, you know, are, um, I see them as they, they almost see you as like your, their friend. So how do you, um, how do you suggest that, you know, and not everyone is the same personality. Not everyone has those, that same skill set. but any suggestions on, um, on building that nice relationship of trust where they, they uh, see you in a really positive light. Sure. I think, um, I think a lot of people like to, to be acknowledged for any kind of work that they're doing, but I think it's important to be able to ask questions and understand if why something might take as long as it does, or why something functions a certain way, or if there was something that was changing the requirement that causes conversation to have back and forth. And I think asking questions, even if they may seem ridiculous, um, sometimes kind of getting on the same page with somebody um, is, is very important. And I think, you know, uh, not being afraid to get in there and say, you know, and ask if everything's okay, or ask something very specific about the project, it, it starts dialogue and that kind of builds relationships that way. So yeah. we try to do everything organically. Um, obviously there's not anything, anything I, I set up in my head initially to say, yeah. how am I going to reach out to this developer to make them, uh, to, 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 to make a great rapport, but mm -hmm. I want to make sure that we have a great rapport with the product and the project. And then at some point in time, our personal rapport will, will, will come from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and I think it's important to, to have the expectation that you're going to build a good rapport with the developer, that you're not some sort of adversary. You're not, um, you know, they're your friend, they're, they're uh, your ally. They're going to help, help you get that work done. And um, so, so it seems like that's, that's the mindset you have to go into it with that you're, Ex expecting to build a good trust and rapport with this developer you're sort of going to do whatever it takes to get to that point so um and that's what i've seen you do a great job doing yeah, everybody's when we're doing projects it's all relationship right nobody writes the right. perfect story and the developers right. there has to be a little bit of give and take on both sides to really kind of make things work and um yeah. i think the at the end of the day at the end of the goal we want the clients to be happy and we want to get things done on time and so yeah. we need to kind of work together to make that happen yeah. awesome all right, so the next question is, we meet a lot of clients who use all kinds of things to manage work uh, in communication from email and text and Slack. There's also the more professional tools. There's Jira, then there's Trello, which used to be a pretty simple tool and they, they keep building onto that. 
Um, we personally use SoftDPM. Um, so what do you think are some tips that will help people stay on top of what's going on in terms of workflows, regardless of the tools that are being used? I don't know if that's a, if that's a anyway, just, yeah, however you wanna answer that. Yeah, sure. So um, obviously if you're dealing with lots of different clients along lots, lots of different platforms, you want to think, keep things probably consistent. Um, that's one of the reasons why we developed soft EPM was so that way internally we had one central location for looking at stories for both the product manager side and the developer side. And then uh, uh, some of our clients even wanted to be in and see how the development was going um, using the project management tool. And I think that's been really helpful. Um, now, as far as communication goes, a lot of clients, a lot of them maybe wanted to communicate via Upwork or email or even sometimes Slack, and we've been pretty flexible with that. I think once you're established and you have uh, a lot of clients, you probably need to come up with your own central uh, means of communication. And I think most clients really only care about the development and kind of getting stuff done, so they'll fall in line. They may have a preference for using Trello or Jira or Slack or something along those lines. And you can obviously work out within your own organization how that would work. But if you have something set in place for your organization, typically speaking, the clients are much more flexible with saying, okay, yep, we can deal with that. We can communicate via email and you can use your own process and we'll stand out of the way sort of thing. As long as they know what's going on, you can provide them updates no matter how it's done, I think right. is the key. Yep. Okay. So um, what are a few best practices? So just looking at um, you know, being, being someone who has managed a lot of work items over the years, um, and what are some best practices to manage work from an idea through to a task to development to, to being in process, um, being tested, whatever, to onto getting that feature um, into a live environment? So what are some best practices um, that you might recommend? Um, obviously, you want to write down and keep track of everything when you meet with your clients and they pitch the product management idea. You want to have that stuff written down and in place, hopefully that's other play, other people in your business can use it. Um, mm -hmm. We use, again, Softy PM to kind of do that. And sometimes we'll just jot down something that become a task or a story that just is the headline, right? It'll say, you know what, um, add a particular uh, feature to it to a screen that hasn't been developed yet. And you'll just map it out and say, just put that little line item in there. Maybe later back in, later on, you'll go back in and write the functionality or the specific uh, tasks or, or, or bullet points that kind of would make it come to life. Mm -hmm. But it's important to, as you're kind of meeting with clients throughout the day and things like that, to make sure that you keep these things in writing and in a location where somebody else can actually understand what, they're, what they are as well. And you have people that are able to kind of help pick you up and, and, and work things out. I think that's important. So yeah. um, I don't know. I think that's the best thing you can do is take notes and put them in a central location so other people can use them. Yeah, so um, so just clarity around making sure that you're, you're gathering the requirements from the client you know, as clearly as possible. Or if you're the person who, um, who wants the work done, then it would be just making sure to put down um, detailed notes and uh, right. you know, passing those along or putting them in a place where people can see them. Yeah, it's amazing that you'll have a conversation with somebody and 
when you start doing a wireframe where you start writing down the requirements for the project and then you realize there's other questions, there's other pieces that need to be done and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, you'll have to build, kind of build up on that, maybe create more stories and more tasks related to the, related to the project. Um, okay. But writing it down and kind of having a central location for it is the key. Yeah. And I've seen, I've seen you use um, Google Docs as well. So you set up like a, um, you set up a, a directory over there on Google Docs uh, for each project. And then you, you because I think um, a lot of times in projects, you can have, you can have uh, screenshots that somebody did, or you can have mock-ups or a write-up, um, and you can have inputs from different people. And seems like it's really important to manage all those different pieces and often something will get lost. Um, you know, it's not hard to lose something right in this day and age where we're sharing it through so many different means. And you might have something that got shared via email um, or maybe let's say that someone emailed it to you, but they emailed it to you at a different email address than you typically use. I mean, I, I have lost a lot of stuff right over the years just um, in projects. So I've seen you, you use that and that's another effective thing, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think Google Docs is a great place to store information. And the great thing about it is you invite or share notes with somebody uh, via their email address on Google. Um, it'd be great if you could, if you work for an organization where you all have the same um, email address and the same, or not just say email address, but email domain. Mm -hmm. And then it's kind of easy to manage access um, from that perspective. But also at the same time, you know what, if you have somebody that's with your company and they decide to leave or whatever, you can simply turn off their access ahead of time and their, the Google Docs that they once had access to, they can't access anymore. So from a security standpoint, that's a good way of kind of keeping things in, on track. But also, right. you know, if you have wireframes, PDFs, uh, other requirement type docs that, um, that have come up over time, it's a good place to have a centralized location. Yeah, great tip. Um, all right, so before putting features live, how do you make sure everything's working properly? So yeah, anyway, that's the first question. It's, it's a two-part question, I'll ask the first part. Sure, so well, testing, testing is the key. Obviously, yeah. you wanna do smoke tests and regression tests um, to make sure that anything that was new that was implemented to a project is working correctly. And then secondly, to make sure it doesn't break anything else. Um, you know, I think clients really appreciate that. So that way they don't get a lot of surprises when things uh, go to production. Um, working with the developers to making sure that they kind of put codes in specific branches so you can test each branch one at a time and see how it kind of comes together, mm -hmm. I think is also important. And then also if there's an issue, they can simply pull that branch out of the code and make adjustments to it and then re-add it again. So yeah. um, again, different organizations do things different ways, but having a, a local or a test environment where you can kind of check things as, as they're done is really important. And I think getting it tested right after the developer completes it is so important. So that way you kind of keep the momentum of uh, the develop, any changes the developer has to make, he's they're, they're fresh on his mind from a development standpoint. Yeah. Yeah, and we've seen we've seen situations where um, where we we had um, different teams, like an, an external team that somebody else was basically responsible for, as well as an internal team where we had code that they tried we tried to merge together, and, and you know it can be kind of a mess if you don't have people updating their their uh, you know basically updating their branch every single day. You you go out there and do a poll of any code that was pushed, um, so. So we've definitely seen some messes there. 
um, with regards testing. Um, you also mentioned regression testing, which um, you know my my definition of regression testing is making sure that when you fix something or when you cr uh, create a new feature that you're not breaking something else or deleting something you didn't mean to, to delete. Uh, so that's my my the way I see regression testing. What about smoke testing? I don't think I've actually ever heard that term. Uh, so smoke testing is sometimes uh, a small change is made um, and you want to just, instead of doing a deep dive thorough test, you mm -hmm. might just want to test uh, the basic fun functionality of something. I so. See. Um, it's not as uh, in-depth as regression testing. And sometimes you have to determine whether or not a smoke test is sufficient or not. Obviously, automated testing is obviously the best way to go. But in an environment where you're working with clients that are fast-paced and things like that, you don't have time to necessarily build that all the time. So okay. sometimes the smoke test is relevant to do. Got it. Yeah. And I think, I think for a lot of clients um, and probably for a lot of people, that kind of testing is probably more... Um, <laughs> To me, I would, I would recommend that kind of testing. So much, a much to do a deep dive takes a lot of time, a lot of hours. And so you can imagine um, if someone's going in there with a certain budget and they wanna get something built as inexpensively as possible. And, um, and then if they really paid for, like, ex for deep dive testing on every single thing, it's probably gonna cost double, triple, whatever the budget was to actually just do the development work itself. So, um, the cool thing about that kind of smoke testing, like you said, um, a, uh, a real light testing where you're just making sure things are looking good is that then maybe the client, maybe the person who's getting the work done, maybe they can actually be putting in some hours themselves running through features and testing stuff um, so that they don't have to hire someone else to do that. Um, and plus they're the one who really understands how this is supposed to work. So it's probably a good idea for them to see it while it's being developed. Does that make sense? Right. Absolutely. And as things get more complex with the clients, you can go in and say, Hey, um, are you going to go in and test this? And, and if they not, if they're not, and they really want you to do it, then we need some recommendations to sit with down with them to see, okay, I need to know how you're going to use the product, how your end client, how the end users can use the product just to make sure that, on our side that we make sure that we understand um, and test for all those eventualities that um, uh, the user might have. So yeah. um, knowing that relationship is obviously key with the client. Yeah. All right. And then, um, so in, in testing, so you brought up testing as the, the way to make sure everything's working properly. Um, if something is wrong, if something isn't working properly, then how do you communicate uh, clearly communicate that it needs fixing and if it's related to something else. And what I'm talking about is specifically with, um, you know, you have developers who build stuff and then the, let's say the client or whoever's testing comes back and says, this, this item isn't working uh, as I would expect it to work. Um, so how do you communicate that back in a way that, that uh, helps to track it and not get it lost along with a bunch of new features? Well, the important thing is, is to make sure that if something's not working like it's expected, to make sure you know what the expectation is because giving something to a developer and say this doesn't work is not helpful. They have to know what's wrong with it and what it should look like and how it should work. Um, I always love to record videos for everything that I, for, for not everything, but for most things yeah. that, I, that I do so that way it's clear, hey, you fixed this, but it broke this or hey, this works really great, but it's really expected to work more like this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and I think once people can visualize things, um, it's an easy way to kind of go in and say, oh, okay, I get it. And we can yeah. kind of move forward from there. 
Yeah, and and I think I think videos are probably a great innovation of the past, whatever, probably three or four years because it seems like before that it was hard to find a platform where you could record a little video and send it along. And plus, with internet being, you know, it keeps getting broader and broader. Um, but I remember back, um, whatever, ten years ago, it seemed like it was it was harder to communicate that kind of thing. But you're absolutely right. You do use those videos, and they're extremely helpful. They also um, as long as the video is well recorded and it really shows shows the bug uh, well, seems like that could be a real good um, good thing to measure against as well when the developer goes and, and does the fix. You have the video showing the, the behavior that you didn't like, and then you can test and see if the behavior is fixed. But you can always refer back to that video as that's what it looked like when it was broken, you know. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, tools like record.it or Loom or even Zoom, are great yeah. tools for doing that. And um, back in the old days, we used to have to write down steps to recreate. You'd write down, you know, I logged in here as this type of user and I clicked this yeah. button and I did this. And it's, you know, you get down 10 steps and it's it's complex. Like, oh, did I do step three or whatever? On right. the video, you can kind of pause, stop, record and see it. And once you can kind of see it, I think the brain understands things a lot better. So yeah. just my just my two cents on that. But the fact that you have free recording software everywhere makes it so much easier. And then, you know, uh, even if you're worried about sending that kind of stuff in an email or something like that, where the file could be large, it could be a five minute video or whatever, um, yeah. throw it on YouTube and send a link for free or use Loom and send a link for free. And it's, you know, you don't have to worry about a lot of space being taken up. So good point. All right. Um, walking on coals or bed of nails? Um, I think the coals are temporarily hot. So I think, you know, you can walk across those faster. The nails, I'd hate for it to sink all the way in, you know. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of tetanus shots with nails. <laughs> That's true. Hopefully the galvanized type that don't have, uh, don't have any tetanus on them. <laughs> um, Hopefully you're fast. Let's, let's put it that way. If you're, doing, <laughs> if you're going on the coals, you better be fast. That's all. Yeah. All right. So when pushing code into one place, how do you make sure you don't have some code getting in other codes way? And this is, so this is, obviously we're not gonna get into real technical details of this, but, um, and this is on my mind because we've seen something, uh, we've seen lately this something happen with this, but um, does that question make sense? So, and this is something that clients or people who wanna get code developed probably wonder about. And I know that, you know, before I got into this, whatever, 20 years ago, um, you know, I wondered how it all worked. So what's your high level, this high level uh, explanation of, how you keep code from hitting other code, you know? And if I'm not actually doing the development, I asked, you know, uh, we want to be really risk, risk adverse or at least understand the risk when we push new code to yeah. say, what areas of this new code will, what other areas will it impact on the, on the platform? And sometimes it's really basic on the, on the, on the user interface. You, you can kind of know what clicks or what functionality impacts other functionality. Yeah. Um, and you need to go back and regression test all that functionality that that touches. And I think that's the key is knowing what it touches and making sure that um, it worked the same way it did before. And there's no impacts to, I mean, you don't want to avoid obviously pushing new code. You don't want new code that touches a lot of different things not to be implemented. You do, but you just yeah. want to make sure that you go back and understand the impacts of that. Make sure that you test, test those regression test uh, those, those pieces. Right. I think that's important. Yeah. And um, there, there are also a couple new things that are used a lot in, in, in um, you know, back when we were 
together at TCA, uh, whatever, 10 years ago, um, there was someone working on automated testing. And today um, you can build automated testing suites. And uh, most, I would say most clients don't think they have the budget for automated testing suites, but let's face it, an automated testing suite is a really great way to test a whole bunch of stuff really quickly every single time you push code. And um, if, if, you know, if the listener, if you haven't seen this work, um, essentially it's as simple as you push your code, um, the code gets pushed to the same GitHub repository or whatever, um, whatever code management system you use. And then when the code gets pushed, it automatically kicks off a suite of, of scripts that contain all of the classes, all of the functions that are all over in your code and runs through every single one and looks for certain things to happen for those to be successful tests. And if they're not successful, then that code push actually gets rejected so that um, each time a developer pushes code, you can say, this is gonna, this is gonna break code that already is in the system or it's not. So um, anyway, it's a pretty cool, pretty cool thing to add to a project. We should, we should probably push it more to new clients is let them know that we should be um, building in automated testing like that. So um, yeah, anyway. And, yeah, absolutely. I think depending on the size of the of the project, I think that's huge. We've had some projects that have lasted. You've had one that's lasted for two years. I would have killed for automated testing suite for uh, one, of, one of our oldest clients just because there's so much complexity in there and the development that's been done and so many different moving parts and types of users and different screens and different functionalities yeah. where you don't really know um, uh, if new codes introduced all the changes that you, you need to test and testing regression testing manually, yeah. you know, can for every, for every change can take a lot of time. So okay. you could save a lot of money with that, with, 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 with automated testing. Right. Totally. Oh, and, and um, I just wanted to share circle CI is, uh, is the, is it, can you hold on just a second, Ken? The cat is trying to get in the, on the, in the work, in the office. She's like scratching at the door. <laughs> no worries, no worries. <laughs> this is what happens when you do a live podcast. Is that, is that, what was Reese's? Yeah, that's, that's your, that's your cat. Oh, fantastic <laughs> isn't that hilarious that is awesome yeah so Ken, I that, Ken used I to actually that own this 10 years ago <laughs> yeah right yep totally um, what did you rename him smudge uh, was his name when he was with us right and it's a it's a female and we named her lucy lucy yeah and you, you used to call her smudge that's right that's yeah. right yeah um yeah so i just wanted to throw out there circle ci is a um, is a free. It's actually free, and you can use Circle CI to kick off your automated testing suite. And um, you know it is a little technical to get it all set up, so it's not for the faint of heart. But um, but it, but it is pretty cool. Once it's working, it's pretty awesome. And we haven't used it for a whole lot of projects because most clients, you know, if you tell them we'll add uh, we'll add twenty to thirty percent to the budget to add automated testing, but really it's so worth it if you think of 20 to 30%. So what if it costs, 
10,000 to get a development project done. And then you had two to 3,000 to, to um, also add automated testing for every single uh, class and function that's written. Um, but then you think of what does it actually cost in the future? So let's say a year down the road, you hire another team to, um, to add a new feature on because the original team that you hired um, doesn't do it anymore or whatever, they're not interested in working with you. Um, and so you go, you go to work with a new team, that new team pushes code and you have no idea if, if their code is breaking stuff that worked before, unless you spend your own, whatever, you probably, it'll probably take you an entire week to test everything in your system, so, um, or more. Uh, so anyway. Well, it'll just, help also eliminate bugs initially as well. I mean, not to say anything will ever be bug-free because it won't. I can go on Amazon's website and find bugs right now. It's not a, it's, but um, it, what, it, what it'll do is stop, is stop, um, from new 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 additions to your code, from bringing up bugs that weren't there before, it'll stop that in its tracks and allow you to kind of manage not, things that worked before not working in, in the future because something because new code was pushed. So, yeah. Um, all right. So, last couple of questions here. Um, so, this is just about what tools do you personally? We've talked about tools, and I want I want to hear your you know your real gut feel reaction. You don't have to sell anything in particular, not even our own tools. Um, but what tools do you personally find the most helpful to manage workflows? And these are communication tools. They could also be, um, they could also be project tools, just whatever you personally have found the most helpful. Um, any kind of product management software tool, I think is, is, is helpful. So that way um, you can have um, a good tracking for all the stories, tasks, bugs, things like that, that you've written. I think that's very important yeah. to, uh, because as projects progress and things like that, you'll say, you know what, did I write a story for this? Did we already do this? Yeah. Uh, you can kind of uh, point to it and find it that way. I think uh, anything that you can use for wireframes, whether it be Miro, there's one that you introduced me to, Tim, that's a great wireframing yeah. tool, I forget. Um, mockups. Yeah, mock mockups or balsamic. Um, I think those are mockups with the Q, M O Q. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, those are great for when product management when you're kind of um, mocking things up. Also, Figma, if you really want to go deep and detailed, I think that's more closer to related to designers than it is for product managers. But yeah, some of that stuff is also um, hand in hand. Um, if you have a Google email address, please take advantage of um, Google Docs for free. Um, mm -hmm. Not only for um, requirements, sharing PDF, Word documents, stuff like that. But you also have Excel if you need to do analytics or share some other type of internal client and in company information um, mm -hmm. that's valuable um, with specific people. I think that's, that's, that's really useful as well. So yeah. um, off the top of my head, those are the four that I probably use the most. Yeah. Um, yeah and anything else, you know, uh, and then obviously anything that you can do video software, um, so like when we're talking about zoom, when I meet with a client, it's always good to record. It's kind of goofy to kind of sit there and talk to a client at a conference and then be taking notes. But if you have the recording, you can go back and take notes later and really focus in on things. And especially if there's any kind of screen sharing presentation, um, having to be able to record on zoom or whatever, um, meeting software that you're using is important, is relevant. Yeah. And I've noticed, um, that. And I, and I um, before we started working together, like I almost never recorded meetings, but when, um, when you're doing meetings, almost always you'll ask the client if you can record them. And I think it's a great, uh, I think it's a great recommendation to do because, you know, to your point, 
if you're taking notes, you're still going to miss some stuff. You can't write down every single word the client says, but if you have um, if you have a video recording, you can still do notes. But then um, if you miss something, you don't have to wear the client out. You can you can go back and watch the recording later and uh, and catch those moments. And you could also reach out to the client, of course, later. And if you did miss something um, that you wanted to flesh out more. But anyway, I think that's a great recommendation is uh, recording your Zoom meetings, which is super easy. So, um, all right. So a lot of people who are um, who are planning to manage remote workflows are people who, you know, let's say for, for developers are people who have a full-time job doing something else. So they already, um, they already work in um, either they're going to do something outside their own job or they're doing it um, as, as in their company, they're being asked to manage, manage a remote team, right? And I think this is happening more and more where at a company that you're expecting an employee to manage a remote team um, to, to leverage some of that, some of that workforce, um, the global workforce to, to build out a certain area, the, the software or for whatever reason. So any tips, last minute tips on better managing remote workflows for a person who has a job doing something else. So this, they're getting into it brand new and, and they have no idea what they're doing. Yeah, um, always you want to get a feel for the developer and how the best way to communicate with them is. Um, sometimes some developers are really good with just strictly with instruction written down, send it, give it to me, hand it off, and we're kind of good to go. Um, I have a developer that every time, no matter how great the story is I write, no matter how detailed the instructions are, he always wants to talk about it. And that's fine. I think that makes me feel good because that means he's taking the time to make sure that he has a good understanding. But you know, at the end of every meeting that you kind of have or with somebody, you might have a, a nod or something that says they accept or they or a handshake that says they kind of understand. Now, with everything kind of being uh, different and, and remote, you don't have that anymore. But you yeah. do want to have that sign off from somebody when you give them something to, set, to make sure that they understand what it is that you're giving them. So you always want to ask a question at the end, say, hey, here's these five stories I've given you for this project. Do you have any questions? Does all this make sense to you? And get affirmation. And you keep asking until you get affirmation. And if you don't, that's perfectly fine. If you do, if they don't understand, you want them to tell you so that way you guys can flush it out now instead of later. So, yeah. All right. Well, um, so I think those are great tips, and we try to keep this podcast to thirty minutes. So thanks a lot for joining me again, Ken. And um, if anyone has any additional questions, you can email me at tim at softyware.com. Or you can email Ken at kpiedra, P-I-E-D-R-A, at softyware.com. And we'd be happy to answer any additional questions for you. So um, thanks a lot, Ken. And, um, and we'll talk to you later. I'll talk soon. Okay, yep. Yeah.